millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the May edition of the Crime Investigation Podcast. My name is Martin Hines and welcome to all you investigators for another show of crime-based conversation. Coming up this week, we are getting safety tips from a former Detective Chief Inspector of New Scotland Yard. We will be studying the life of a court reporter and also discussing last meals. But first, everybody here at Crime Investigation HQ is still incredibly excited about The Jail and our online audience have responded very well. Every Wednesday night, I watch our Twitter and Facebook feeds erupt as people discuss missing shower shoes, pod bosses, blenders and commissary. And I've seen people become friends through their shared appreciation of the show. If you also want to get involved in the jail and crime investigation-based discussion, we're on Twitter, at CI, and on Facebook, at CI UK. So give us a follow or a like and join the conversation. Use the CI podcast hashtag to share your feedback and become a member of the Jail Wednesdays on Twitter and Facebook. One participant in the jail who has enjoyed a lot of positive response has been Mariam, or Yasmin Brown as she's referred to inside Clark County. And we caught up with Mariam to talk about her time on the show, and you can hear the interview after this piece of music. We are here with Mariam Ali on the Crown Investigation podcast. Mariam, thank you so much for coming on today. And our first question is, what was your reasoning for volunteering for the jail? Well, I, I mean, I work, in, I work with at-risk kids who are high risk of joining gangs, going to jail, um, you know, having chronic juvenile delinquency issues. So I felt that an experience from the inside would help me be able to translate the criminal justice system and all of these issues around it to these kids um, to try to prevent them from going. I also work with their families, some of which are in jail. So, you know, being an inmate, it gives me a different perspective in terms of um, the work that I do right now. You assumed a very helpful role in the jail and your calm attitude seemed to help people a lot. Did you expect that to happen? Yes. I mean, I I said to the producers, you know, at the at the heart of who I am is a is a social worker and and I won't try to help in too much of an intrusive way, but when I see opportunities to be supportive, that's what I want to do. Cuz that's who I am, you know. So, I did expect to do that. I didn't know what shape or form it would take, but I wanted to wait for openings to do that. So when a girl said I want to pass the GED. I never got my high school diploma. I said, oh, I used to tutor kids. I can help you with your math. So, you know, I didn't help when it wasn't asked for or when I didn't see the need. So, yes, I did expect to be the helper person in there. Yes, I did. 
That comes across very clearly indeed, actually. You mentioned that people inside wanted to better themselves. So did the real inmates live up to expectation or were you surprised at all? Um, they didn't surprise me because I work with high-risk populations. I work in neighborhoods of severe poverty and crime. So I'm used to that population. I do, I, you know, in the work that I do, I don't put anybody in one box. I never say all these inmates are just alike. So I've been trained to understand you cannot, you can't categorize a stereotype. Um, so, I mean, they're people, you know, people want to think that people in jail are just jail people. No, they're people. And a lot of them had some sad stories in terms of the trauma in their lives since childhood. And you could almost hear and see how they got to that point of going to jail. So, I mean, I had some empathy for what they've gone through. You know, they're, they're very similar to you and me, um, but some of them just had really tough, tough roads that they weren't strong enough to come through. And you, you just can't judge that. You know, everybody doesn't have a mentor. Everybody doesn't have a strong father figure, mother figure. So I, what I saw in there is what I expected. There are a myriad of type of different women in there, not all one kind. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. That makes perfect sense. So considering the differences in people, although you had some prior knowledge of how the system works, throughout the 60 days, was there one aspect of jail life that made you think, wow, I was not expecting that? Okay, so I thought there would be a very depressing, somber environment every day. I thought everybody would feel completely distraught that they were locked up. And what was surprising is the resilience of some of these women and how they coped being locked up, how they formed families and relationships to mimic a mother or a sister, how they had a daily routine that felt like home. You know, they, you know they're more resilient and strong. They're stronger than they think they are. But since a lot of them were addicted to drugs, it's hard for that stress to shine through the addiction. Um, but like I said, once they get in, they're clean. You know what I'm saying? They're not using. So I was surprised at how well they were able to navigate jail and manage their mentality. Um, they knew how to do that. And, and that I was pleasantly surprised. But at the same time, I felt, wow, it seems like they should be more disappointed about being in jail than they are. There was a comfort level that a lot of them had. You mentioned drugs and addiction in your answer there. Can you just explain what differences you helped make at Clark County in regards to helping people who suffer from those sort of problems? I mean, I do not want to overstate my impact. That system is so large that um, I don't want to even begin to say I just didn't have such an impact on that jail. I, I can't say that. Um, I know I learned a lot from it. I know that I gave my recommendations. One of them was you need better substance abuse treatment in here. It needs to be better than what it is. Because I did go to one of the AA meetings, and, and, I, and I just felt it was, it, was, it was surface. I think it should be better for them in there. For sure. We've seen your approach on that and how kind and conscientious you come across. So speaking of which, Muhammad Ali, your father, is one of the most famous people on the planet. He's known very much for his kind demeanour and his helpful attitude. What was his reaction to your time on the jail? Um, I will say since the show aired, I haven't seen him physically. I spent his birthday with him in January, and I've been travelling ever since. 
So I haven't watched the show with him. His wife said he had seen it, but I, I know my father's personality, and um, he would have definitely not wanted me to go if he knew about it, which is great. I had to keep it a secret. But my father is very intrigued that I made it through. <laughs> and he's the kind of guy who will say, you crazy, you crazy. I would have never done that, you know. But, you know, he would find it very fascinating and happy that, that he he's not very verbal because it's Parkinson's. Um, but, you know, I know he, at the end of the day, knowing that I made it through, he, he's happy I made it through and he finds the show. He has watched uh, bits and pieces of it because it comes on kind of late and he goes to sleep early. So his wife said he's watched it. He's, his eyes are wide open. And she's like, she's, this was just an experiment. She really wasn't in there. So, you know, he's happy I got out safe and everything. But, you know, he knows that I'm, I'm a, you know, I'm an adventurer. Your father, Muhammad, was one of the best boxers of all time. So when you were younger, did he ever teach you any tricks of the trade to help you with self-defence, which may have come in handy inside? You know what's so funny he did? He would say, this is so funny, he was so comical. He would say, if you ever get in a situation where you think someone's trying to beat you up and you're going to get in a fight, act crazy. But he said, the biggest bully don't like a crazy person. Act crazy. <laughs> so so he, he definitely told me to be confident. Try not to fight. Always talk it out. Even though he was a boxer, my father didn't like to argue with people. He was a very soft teddy bear out of the ring. He hated arguing, and he hated negative talk. So if I, if I didn't like someone in the family or a friend, and I came back and I talked ill of them, he goes, try not to talk bad about people. You know, try to understand who they are and, and, and uh, avoid conflict. But if you have to fight, be confident and act crazy. So when he would do the weigh-ins for his boxing matches, that's why he would act crazy. He would try to beat them psychologically before the fight began. Um, so I, I, I did take a lot of that with me in jail. Not so much act crazy right off the bat, but act very confident like you're a winner. Act like, no, you don't want to come up to me and fight me because I'm strong enough to beat you. Um, but be respectful. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of things my dad taught, along with being, you know, in my field that I'm in, I felt it served me well. That's a very good answer, Marion. Very inspiring, actually. I have to say, we've done our research on you, and we're led to believe you've also dabbled in some stand-up comedy in the past. Is that true? Yeah, I did. Um, it's interesting. I Before I got my degree in social work, I did do stand-up comedy. And after I started working, comedy was like a... It's something I'm, I'm just naturally funny. I mean, I have made my bunkies laugh all the time. It's just a natural thing for me. And uh, when I was in my 20s and early 30s, I uh, did stand up and I loved it. And I used to want to do it to uh, talk about social issues and get points across about race and uh, our government and, you know, the overindulgence with celebrity lifestyle. So I tried to have a message with it. But I've always been this, this goofy, funny person. That's my other side. And, and I, I knew I didn't want to continue doing it as a profession because I loved community work more. And I had to choose. What do I want to do? I didn't like being on the road. I, used, I was on the road with Chris Rock. And I just didn't like hopping from hotel to hotel. So it was a lifestyle I hated. And I didn't like clubs. So by the time I got into my like, mid-20s, I, I said, this is something I would do for fun. And as a, as a stress reliever, but I don't want to do this for a profession. And my heart was really in community work. Um, 
But yeah, I mean, I, I, I just I have a great sense of humor, and I don't like to take. I, I'm serious in one sense, but I like to stay positive, you know, and I, I like the feel of humor and laughter and lightness. And I tried to bring that with me in the jail. I mean, me and my bunkies laughed until we were crying. We we laughed so hard. Um, <laughs> there was one night I used to do impersonations. There was one night in jail where I did impersonations of everybody in the cell. Not to make fun of them, but I know how to mimic mannerisms. So some of the ladies were very funny, and they were, they were, they were great characters, the way they would talk, and it was so funny. And I, and I was in the cell imitating some of the people in, in the cell, and my bunkies were laughing so hard. And it was just fun to, to see them laughing like that. You know what I'm saying? It was just, I, I, I love making people laugh. I love it. Did you come up with any good jokes while in the jail? Yeah, jail is not something I'll, I, I want to joke about. I, I, I don't have any jokes about jail. It's a serious, serious thing. I would just say that when I was in jail, we tried to find things to have fun with in our, in our cell. You know, it was more in my cell with my friends, not in the open room area. Um, like there was a lady who was really good at playing cards. Oh, my God, she was so good. She beat us all the time. I couldn't beat this woman to save my life. And finally, when I beat her, I jumped up, I did a dance, oh, my God, and everyone was cracking up laughing, you know. So I just like to make light fun out of positive things. But to joke about jail and, and the situation in there, eh, that's not funny. One final question. The show is very popular in the UK, and you've obtained a big fan base here. Do you have anything you want to say to your audience over here who just enjoy watching the show and are big fans of yours? That is, that, that, I don't understand that one. You just told me that. I didn't know that. Um, well, first of all, you know, my father, I, you know, I, I'm used to people coming up to him and getting autographs and I'm just a regular person in the community working to, um, provide assistance to people who have very little. And I, I get the show to learn from being an inmate and to be able to take that information to people in poverty and people who don't have anything. Um, my father was a big humanitarian. I, I got some of that from him, some of that from my grandmother. But I'll just say for the people watching, for me, that experience was about learning as much as I can learn to impart something to the people I work with. And that, that's my agenda. You know, um, I didn't think I would – I was shocked when I heard it was in the U.K. and other places. I didn't know it was going to be everywhere. I, I didn't even know it would be a hit. I, I, you know, I knew it would be interesting, but – I'm about to work on uh, my curriculum that I'm, I'm writing for my own program for kids, and there's a piece of the curriculum now that I'm dedicating to the criminal justice system, and I'll be with a, a discussion group in a couple weeks of people who work in the community, people who have people that are incarcerated, and try to get um, a brainstorming session with them as to how do we translate this message to really young people from 10 to 15. And um, so that's really where my head is at with it. Uh, the fame and the celebrity, um, it's, that's fleeting. That's, I mean, it's nice people enjoy the show and me, but that's not really why I did it. So, I, you know, I just I, I want the people who are watching it to say prayers for people who can use this show to help other people. And um, I would say because of my, my time in jail, if you have people incarcerated, I know it's hard to, to see your loved ones in that situation, but please visit them. Because a lot of people don't visit their sons and daughters and fathers and mothers because it's too hard for them. But I'm telling you, jail is so hard. 
and it's so depressing that when family and friends don't visit, it, it makes it worse. It, it just is like a stab in the heart. Wow, that's a very passionate message. Thank you so much, Mariam. Thank you for coming on the show today. Thank you. Right, we're switching from the jail to the courtroom now as we're going to talk to Guy Twin from Court News UK, which is an excellent website and a Twitter account that takes a slightly different look at the world of court reporting. In just a moment, you can have an interview with Guy, but before we begin, take a listen at a sample of Court News UK to give you some understanding of just what they report on via Twitter. April 7th. Man ordered to leave the public gallery for yawning and moaning tells magistrates it's like something from a carry-on film. He continued... I've been here since 9.30 this morning and you haven't got one case right. Your jokes. A Frenchman hurled camembert at Waitrose staff and used his trolley as a battering ram as he tried an audacious escape after swiping cheese. April 13th. Jurors phone blast Shakira's hips don't lie during assault trial. Judge says, I don't think much of your taste in ringtone. Rapper MC Harvey turns up at court with his mum and says jail will ruin his Hollywood career. He gets two and a half months anyway. Barrister apologises to Judge for his late arrival. Judge replies, I hadn't even noticed. April 15th. Prosecutor previously unable to remember that a bike for two is called a tandem uses closing speech to wow jury of his newfound knowledge. Judge to defendant. So you're a roofer and a drug user. Be careful you don't fall off. I'm an intelligent man, but I'm not well versed in law. Says man defending nurse accused of trapping patient in a room with a sofa. Hashtag good luck. Welcome back to the Crime Investigation Podcast. Joining us now is Guy from Court News UK. Guy, welcome to the show. Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, very well, thanks. It's great to have you on. We're a huge fan of your website and your Twitter here at Crime Investigation. But first question to you, can you just tell us a little bit about your background in crime? How did you get into court reporting? Well, I've been uh, working as a journalist now for more years than I care to remember, to be quite honest with you. And uh, as a general journalist, of course, you basically have to uh, cover uh, crimes and the courts as well. And then a few years ago, for different circumstances, I moved up to London. And basically, I used to work for the agency here. It was owned by a previous company. And then um, a few years ago, we had the opportunity to uh, buy the company ourselves. And uh, we did so, and we've been regretting it ever since. <laughs> it's not quite regretting it. It's a very popular website, very popular Twitter account as well. What makes you guys different to other people who are writing similar content? I think uh, the main difference is that we're completely irreverent. We don't really, uh, how can I say, bow and scrape to people, as you do see in a lot of uh, different coverage of the courts. The other thing that we do, and I think it's quite interesting to to do, I think people are interested in, is to, how can I say, uh, portray some of the ridiculousness uh, that happens in courts, some of the defences, for example, that uh, people have uh, when they're obviously guilty are absolutely uh, unbelievable. And uh, I think that people are interested in those. And, of course, you know, in terms of a newspaper, uh, a ridiculous defence case really isn't going to sell a lot of newspapers. Uh, but in terms of a Twitter feed, it, you know, if you can basically suggest how nonsensical uh, some of the stories people give to juries are, I think people are very interested in that. They absolutely are. We played a few of your tweets before the interview, and the thing around the office we all had was just incredulous that, that people can be so brazen in their defences. I mean, for you, in the cases you've covered over the years, can you give us some examples of just some ridiculous things you've experienced in court? Um, I remember one particularly a few years ago where a guy was uh, nicked, um, basically holding up a security van, and he said that what he'd done was basically someone had given him the, the bag containing the gun, and he was basically going round uh, looking to give the bag back, and he just so happened to get the bag, the gun, out of the bag uh, while a security van pulled up. Uh, that one still makes me laugh to this day, I have to tell you. I think a lot of people 
what they know about court is what they see on TV in dramas and such like. So for you, someone who's actually there a lot of the time, do people laugh there? Is there humour in court or is it very serious a lot of the time? You're not supposed to laugh in court at all. And in, ta- in fact, I've been t- told off by a number of judges for having a good laugh at the back of the court. Um, you can't basically stop people laughing at the, in a court. Uh, sometimes it happens that people do, you know, it's just part of life, isn't it? People laugh at things perhaps in appropriate times. Sometimes juries do laugh. Uh, but generally, of course, people, it's a very, very serious attitude. And to a certain extent, it has to be that way, because otherwise you're going to have a situation if people are laughing and laughing all the time. Uh, obviously, you're not going to get much done in terms of the daily business of the court. So there's a good reason for it. But uh, as I said, there's been a number of times uh, when I have had a bit of a giggle. In fact, that defense where the guy uh, basically said he was taking the gun out of the bag to give back to his friend, I remember I was actually sitting in the press box at that time when he was coming out with this, and I did have a good laugh about that. And um, I believe uh, someone actually came down to the press room and had a few words with me about that one, but it's a few years ago now, so that's all forgotten. <laughs> as you say, you do do a lot of humorous stuff online, but there is a lot of serious content as well. How difficult is it to mix that, to mix the humorous side, which obviously gets a lot of attention, a lot of retweets, a lot of article clicks, but there's a lot of serious stuff as well. How do you mix that perfectly? Uh, it's, I mean, it, we just basically say, say it as it is, to be quite honest with you. Uh, whatever comes up, we, we stick on. Obviously, obviously, there's a lot of serious stuff as well. Sometimes it's quite interesting to see people's reactions because, of course, you'd be put, you know, there'd be four or five, you know, fairly humorous tweets, and then there'd be one, uh, how can I say, a very, very deathly serious one. And uh, it's quite interesting to see people's reactions to, to, to that. Um, it's quite interesting to mix the two. Um, but it's sometimes, of course, some of the, the more horrendous stuff. We could, if we wanted to, we could just put endless horrendous stuff on there all day, and we're not in the business of that. I don't think anyone wants that, and certainly we don't really want that either. Um, so some of the horrendous stuff we do leave out. Um, as I can sure you can imagine, some of the offences that we have to deal with are completely unsuitable for a Twitter feed, and uh, we're not going to sort of, sort of hack, I say, put material like that on that. Vice did a really good article on you guys a couple of months ago. They're talking about how you how you do things, what you do on a daily basis. But what one thing you mentioned on, in the article in particular, what was really interesting, was that you said that media representation in courts is almost at an all-time low. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that newspapers and, and magazines and different media sources aren't sending people directly to court anymore to cover the cases? It's just a matter of finance, really. That's the bottom line. I'm afraid uh, there's a story come out today that shows that basically advertising for uh, newspapers, local newspapers in particular, has fallen off a cliff again. Uh, They basically just don't have the resources anymore to send people to court. It's really bad timing as well because crime seems to be in vogue at the moment in terms of the general public. A lot of TV shows centre around crime. Obviously, we have a lot of great programming on subjects as well. Do you think that public opinion on crime and wanting to investigate themselves is increasing. Obviously, your Twitter gets a lot of traction, but do you think the public now are ready for more sophisticated analysis on crime? Well, the thing is, in terms of crime, basically people's interest in crime, people's interest in crime has always been there and it always will be. I mean, people are interested in naughty people. Naughty people are interesting, uh, are, are perhaps good people, less interesting. And it's always been that way. Uh, the biggest, uh, most best-selling novels have always been crime novels. Um, the biggest films have always been crime films, etc., etc., etc. Whether or not that means that people will be more interested in, in stuff coming out of court, I don't know. The problem is it does take uh, a little bit of expertise to, how can I say, extract the interesting from a court story uh, as opposed to the utterly tedious. Because, if, of course, if you're sitting through a court case that lasts maybe three weeks, four weeks, you know, up to six months, 
um, a lot of that material is going to be very, very dull indeed. And it does take a little bit of, uh, how can I say, skill and expertise uh, compose the more dramatic moments. There's been a lot of talk recently that court cases may be televised now in the UK. Do you think that'll be interesting for people? Or as you say, is the reality that a lot of court cases are mostly just quite tedious? Yeah, I think that people who think that, you know, that, that there's going to be a fantastic revolution in, uh, by televising the courts are living in cloud cuckoo land, to be quite honest with you. Uh, what we're going to see is basically, uh, you know, a little bit of footage of the judge at the end of the case. And anyone will tell you that that's the most boring part of the case by a long, long, long way. The most interesting part of the case is not what, what the judge says or not even what the amount of years that someone gets. It's when they're convicted. Everyone wants to know, basically, on an ongoing court case, the difference between innocence and guilt. That's the really interesting moment. During the court, the trial itself, the interesting moment is perhaps when the victim, or if, if the victim's still alive, obviously, uh, gives evidence, or when the defendant gives evidence. That will never be shown. So I don't really know. Uh, I, I can't really see a great deal of value in just basically uh, seeing some judges uh, talking at the end of the case. Um, yeah, I don't think it will affect what we do uh, very much at all. Uh, the other thing, of course, in terms of what we do is that uh, the actual pictures that from the court won't be subject from copyright, so everyone will be able to nick them. So it's, uh, you know, I, I think it's a little bit of an empty exercise myself. I would be very, very interested in having all the courts televised and then really allowing to have, uh, you know, if you like, the democratic effect of people being able to see what goes in court, on in courts actually happen. But, of course, that's, that's never going to happen. They're never going to show witnesses give evidence. Uh, they're very, very wary still of, you know, turning courts into a circus, uh, as happened with the O.J. Simpson trials we've seen on TV only recently. Of course, the O.J. trial was very, very controversial and very popular as well in, in a kind of weird way. But for you, are there any court cases in particular in the past that you'd love to have been at? I think in terms of, um, how, in terms of a court case, basically, the, the, the absolute drama of seeing capital punishment, uh, how can I say, administered, uh, probably would take some beating. So uh, in that case, I'd have the choice of perhaps either uh, the uh, John George Haig and uh, the murders in 10 Rillington Place. He's the, basically the guy who uh, murdered his next-door neighbour and uh, then basically the next door sorry, his next-door neighbour's wife and his next-door neighbour was, was hanged for the offence. And then the police realised they made a little bit of a mistake and then eventually he was tried and he was hanged as well. Uh, it was the subject of a very famous film with uh, Richard Attenborough and uh, John Hurt, either, either that one, or, of course, the granddaddy of them all, uh, Dr. Crippen, Harvey Hawley Crippen, who uh, murdered his wife, uh, buried her in the cellar, and uh, then escaped uh, to America on a transatlantic liner with his lover uh, disguised as a cabin boy. I often wonder how, exactly what they got up to in the cabin later on that night. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. For our social media fans, at CI on Twitter, CI UK on Facebook, you can get involved as well. Let us know what cases you would love to have been at in the past. But for now, Guy, thank you so much for coming today and hopefully we'll be on again soon. 
It's a pleasure and uh, the very best of luck to you and uh, all who are interested in your work. Thanks to Guy there, and you can follow Courtney's UK on Twitter at Courtney's UK or visit their website, courtneysuk.co.uk. Okay, continuing the Twitter theme, we asked our fans on Twitter at CI and on Facebook, CI UK, to tell us what their last meal would be if they were entering the jail for 60 days. The responses produced a lot of delicious delicacies, much akin to Isaiah's feast before he entered Clark County. For example, Duke Nuke on Twitter went for traditional fish and chips, a very nice choice there, Craig Tippins, a Domino's, Michelle Bailey, a lamb roast dinner, a glass of red wine, an apple crumble with custard. Very, very interesting. Julie on Facebook went for steak with peppercorn sauce with chips and a banana milkshake. So after asking our fans what they would choose for a last meal before the jail, I did a little bit of research online and looked at death row meals. And it's very interesting what people chose before their executions. I mean, for example, Victor Fuger, he was hanged in 1963 for kidnapping and murder. He was in fact the last person executed in Iowa. For his last meal, he requested a single olive with the pit still in it, with the hopes it would grow into an olive tree from inside his body. As yet, that hasn't happened, I believe. Ricky Ray Rector was executed in 1992 for the 1981 murder of police officer Robert Martin. He requested steak, fried chicken, cherry Kool-Aid and pecan pie. He left the pie on the side of the tray, though, telling the guards who came to take it from him that he was saving it for later. Now, one person who could protect you from these sort of death row people is Steve Gaskin, the former Detective Chief Inspector of New Scotland Yard. Steve, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for inviting me here. Just for anybody listening, Steve, who's unaware, could you share your background in law enforcement for the listeners, please? Yep, I had the privilege of being a senior police officer at New Scotland Yard for nearly 30 years. Like everyone, I started off as a police constable, but very quickly... Uh, I went into the uh, Criminal Investigation Department, the CID, and uh, I rose to the rank of Detective Chief Inspector, and I've actually investigated uh, probably everything, either uh, through a police station, which I really much enjoyed, or through a specialised squad. We're talking about staying safe today, Steve, which is a concern that everybody has. So what would you say the main issues people have in relation to staying safe in the world of crime? I think the first thing to say is that uh, most people are concerned about being physically attacked. I mean, that's, that's the important thing. And secondly, people don't like uh, being burgled. So there's two there. And thirdly, we've got the rise of fraud. And I would love to give uh, some tips about all three of those. Please do. Let's begin with street safety. What advice would you give in regards to that? The most important thing I'm going to say, there's three elements uh, to street safety. The first one is perpetrator someone that's going to cause injury, a victim and an opportunity. And if you consider those as a triangle, if you take one of those out, that opportunity is not there, it's diffused. I think the important thing to say is we live in a fantastic world of technology, so we're able to really stay safe. A big tip here is on mobile phones, you're able to track friends and family. Now, some people might call that intrusive, but it's actually quite good if someone's going on an extended journey or a different part of a city, then it's actually a very, very good thing to do. Planning ahead is key. It's really important to tell someone where you're going. Very, very important. And the other thing, to the credit of the police force, I'm retired now, they've got crime maps, so you're able to see where the hotspots are, so you can equip yourself with a, a huge amount of information to make sure that you do stay safe. The other thing is, is that with mobile phones and extensive uh, technology is to make sure that they're hidden. Don't give that perpetrator the opportunity. Remember, we're trying to take the opportunity away, so don't keep them on show. Avoid danger spots. Now, this may sound uh, obvious advice, but make sure you don't walk down a dark alley. Uh, make sure you're somewhere that's well lit. 
and um, avoid secluded areas. And I think the other thing is, is do consider having a personal alarm. They're not just purely for women. And I think uh, what's of interest is that uh, most attacks on the street actually happen to males aged between 16 and 25. What are the motives of people who attack? Who do they target and why? Uh, having spoken, and with my experience, having spoken to people that carry out these attacks, uh, they will often attack people that look vulnerable. So if you can walk down the street confidently, if you think you're being followed, walk away very, very confidently, and that may well deter them. That's really, really important. Uh, secondly, by speaking to people that commit these attacks, is that they will often go for uh, easy things, such as mobile phones, stuff that they can snatch, as opposed to personal money. So again, it's really important that uh, you keep those things away. The other thing I would say, without putting yourself in any personal danger, is again, look at what we've got on a mobile phone. If you can take pictures or videos, uh, but call the police. Don't do that. Call the police first. If you, if you feel vulnerable or you see an attack going on, call the police first. And secondly, make sure you video that. My final tip on this, one of the best charities in the company in the in the country is the Susie Lamplew Trust. Now, poor old Susie Lamplew was a, an estate agent and uh, she's never been seen since the 80s. But her mother, Diane, and some other people set up a trust. So it's called the Susie Lamplew Trust and it's got the best personal safety advice you can find online. Great tips there, Steve. It's really interesting that you talk about the psychological aspect of things, acting confident and being assertive. Do you really think that will help people, though? Very, very much so. And uh, that's not me as an ex-DCR. This is looking at um, forensic psychology over the years, looking at all the data that's been fed in. So if you are confident, uh, you're less likely to be attacked uh, than someone that is looking not confident. How can people feel confident in their own homes, though? The threat of burglary often looms large in people's minds, so what tips can you give in regards to that? The first thing to say, and I think this has been brought on by films or the media, is people, burglaries, take place between 3 and 5 o'clock on average. Now, that may surprise you, and that surprises a lot of people, and the instance of burglars actually burgling during the night time is absolutely uh, small percentage-wise. So knowing that between three and five, that's the obvious time that a burglar will strike. But again, we have fantastic technology, so these are some of the tips. Put up a CCC, a CCC camera, very, very cheap these days. They can be bought from a number of outlets. Have it importantly on the front and the back of your house. And also make sure that you've got good lighting. Flood lighting that comes on, all of these things make it harder to break into your castle. And as a former police officer, I used to treat burglary really seriously. It's the worst thing uh, you can have. So make sure it's called, it's, a, it's a, uh, a strange word, it's called target hardening. So make sure that your castle, as it were, becomes impenetrable. Make sure you've got proper locks on your windows. But in giving all of these advice, let's remember that the fear of crime is far worse than the actual situation itself. The, uh, the, the measures of crime in this country say that... Uh, by any account that crime is falling. Unfortunately, published last week, violent crime is on the up. So hopefully those tips will make people a lot more confident and dispel any fears they may have. There's a newer form of crime which also worries people, and that's cybercrime, and especially contactless crime with these new cards out. How can people stop those problems? That's a very good point. You really need to uh, take care of your own fraud problems. The reason being is, of course, the police service are uh, have priorities. And as a DCI, I would look at uh, attacks on, on people, violent crime, theft. 
uh, and fraud takes a low priority because there's only a certain amount of uh, policing hours. So for fraud, you've really got to be your own sort of crime prevention machine. One of the ways and one of the things I see uh, starting to take off is contactless cards uh, are very, very easy to copy, take money from your account. And there's some very slim uh, wallets that you can buy that have got metal on either side and that will stop or reduce the possibility uh, of, uh, of you having money stolen from you. And secondly, do, do protect your bank accounts. And remember that uh, banks will never, ever ask for your PIN numbers. Make sure that they're kept safe. And if you've got any elderly relatives, again, give them this sort of advice. See what they're doing. Uh, but remember, most crime is not aimed at uh, people over the age of 65. That's really interesting. I think a lot of people expect the vulnerable to be the ones who are exploited the most. Is that not the case? No, definitely not the case. Uh, in terms of uh, crime committed on uh, people that are of retirement age, that is the smallest percentage. As I say, uh, most crime is perpetrated, certainly street attacks, are on males aged between 16 and 24, surprisingly to most people. Well, thank you very much for all the tips and suggestions, Steve. Away from helping people in this regard, what else do you do in the world of crime and helping people? I had the privilege uh, uh, nearly 10 years ago of setting up a company, and what we offer is we offer live, hands-on crime scene investigation events so that you can be a detective yourself for a day. We will show you hands-on, so these are not lectures, how to be a fingerprint expert, so we do masterclasses on blood spatter, uh, ballistics, eyewitness identification, really, really good days out. The way to find us is we've got a specialised website. There's a load of free stuff on there, everything we've discussed today, uh, tips on uh, forensic psychology, psychopaths. The website is called csi-live.com. We'd love you to come on there. You, with loads of free stuff. More importantly, you can come along and find out exactly what it's like to be a detective or crime scene investigator, but only for the day. Sadly, that's all for this month's edition of the Crime Investigation Podcast. But thank you so much for listening. We really, really appreciate it. If you liked it, rate and review it on iTunes, or you can visit our social channels, Crime Investigation. We're on Twitter, at CI, Facebook, CIUK, or crimeinvestigation.co.uk. We've got everything on there. We've got TV schedules. We've got crime files. We've got murder maps. We've got all sorts of interesting content for you our crime investigation investigators. It'll be great if you visit us or tweet us, Facebook us, do whatever you want. But one final question for you today, hashtag CI podcast, get in touch. For the next podcast, we're asking, have you ever seen a real life crime with your own two eyes in person? What have you seen? Send us stories, well, true stories, please. Send us what you've seen and we'll try and get them across on the next show. But for now, the crime investigation podcast is over. Until next time, stay curious. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.